Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. All right, what's going on? Welcome to another episode of Life in the Stocks. My name's Matt Stocks. This is my podcast, and this is episode number 86 of the show. And my guest for this week is a criminal defense lawyer. And you might be thinking, wow, that's a little outside of the box. Is it not for Life in the Stocks? And I guess you could say it is. But if you listen to the show a lot, hopefully you'll know I like to mix it up. I like to get on a wide range of different people. And I also like to take myself out of my comfort zone and try new things. And the opportunity to host a live Q&A with this man came up at the end of last year whilst I was on tour with Flogging Molly, the Bronx face-to-face and Lost in Stereo on the third annual Fireball Tour, which, as always, was an absolute blast. And we did a show in Bristol on the Friday. The next day was a day off, and my intention was to stay in Bristol and hang out with some friends anyway. So when the opportunity came up to host a live Q&A in Bristol with David Rudolph, (coughs) excuse me, who is the criminal defense lawyer in the smash Netflix crime documentary series, The Staircase. When that opportunity came up, I jumped at it and I thought, why not? Now, I hadn't seen the show at this point. And my friend Alex, who I'd worked with last July promoting the Pritchard and Dayton Q&A show that we did in Cardiff, he reached out and got in touch and said, Matt, have you seen the show? And are you free? And would you be interested in doing this Q&A? And Well, I lied to him and I said, yeah, I've seen it. I'm up for it. And I hadn't seen it at that point, but I knew I had time to get through it. So every night on tour, I'd DJ the gig. Then I'd go and DJ an after party every single night I did that. And then I'd get back to my hotel room at about 3 a.m., get the laptop out and do an episode a night. And I worked my way through it over the course of two weeks. So when it came to the Q&A, I was prepped. I was ready to go. And it went really well. And I really enjoyed it. As I said, it's always nice to try new things. And you don't really know what you're made of until you take yourself out of that comfort zone. And um, I had a good time. And David has asked me to do a couple more. He is back in the UK this month doing five Q&As 
Uh, he is in Sheffield on the 23rd of January, Manchester on the 24th, Birmingham on the 25th, Brighton on the 26th, and Cardiff on the 27th. And he's asked me to host the Q&As in Birmingham and Brighton. So if you're interested, Google David Rudolph Inside the Staircase Q&A, and then that should hopefully take you to the relevant city and ticket links, etc. Um, but yeah, it's going to be good. And this interview you're about to hear is the live recording from that show in Bristol with David um, in December of last year. And there's a couple of moments when the mic cuts out, only very briefly. Don't feel like, oh God, if this is the way it's going to be for the rest of the interview, I'm out. You just got to ride it out and then the, uh, the sound quality shall return. Um, but thank you as always for tuning in. I hope you like what you hear. As I said, something a bit different this week. But um, dive in. If you've seen the show, I think you'll get a lot out of it. If you haven't seen the show, this might serve as a good taster. And then if you like this, perhaps you can go in and explore inside the staircase obviously the uh, the new smash well it's not even new it's been around years but it's only recently gone to netflix and the world's gone crazy for it and it is a very bizarre story it's the kind of story that you couldn't write you know sometimes real life is far stranger than fiction and this is definitely one of those cases but this is me in conversation anyway with david rudolph the criminal defense lawyer from the staircase here we go Good to meet you all. My name's Matt Stocks, and uh, the special guest we have here tonight, of course, I'm sure you'll know very well from the show The Staircase, uh, David Rudolph. He is one of the preeminent trial lawyers in the United States, specializing in high-profile and complex criminal and civil rights cases. Now, David has been listed for more than 25 years in the best lawyers in America, and he was one of only three criminal defense lawyers recently selected for the inaugural class of the North Carolina Lawyer Hall of Fame. So he's kind of a big deal. Uh, in recent years, in addition to securing acquittals in two high-profile federal and state criminal trials, he successfully represented individuals in civil litigation uh, against law enforcement agencies arising from wrongful convictions. And of course, he is here tonight to talk about the show, which has, I think, made him a household name, um, a show which has blown the world away, really, and I'm sure it's the reason you're all here tonight. Are you excited to uh, delve into it and have some questions answered? Uh, without further ado, let's bring out our special guest, ladies and gentlemen. Please make some noise for Mr. David Rudolph. Give it up. Thank you. Thanks very much. Where's your tea? I left my tea. David was going to bring a tea on stage. I thought, how British. Um, David's, I think, done, is this the 15th show? Well, this is the 12th one on this tour. And I have to say that we were looking at your questions backstage. And this is not just blowing smoke. You folks had the best questions I've seen on the entire tour. I mean, really, really, really good It gets us excited, and it makes my job a hell of a lot easier as well. Um, so thanks for the help, guys. I guess we should start, though, before we go into the staircase and all the, um, you know, layers and multiple um, fascinating queries that we have from that. Let's learn a little bit about you, David. And what I'd like to ask you, first of all, is what inspired you to become a lawyer in the first place? What was the driving force, um, you know, which sent you on this career path? Uh, not knowing what I was going to do with my life is, uh, is the honest answer. Uh, you know, I went, when I went to law school, I really had no idea that I was going to end up here in Bristol in front of all of you. Uh, nor did I even understand that I was going to be a, a criminal defense lawyer. But uh, when I was in law school, uh, I found myself really drawn to criminal cases. 
Uh, and then I was in a, a clinical program where I represented people who were charged with minor crimes. Uh, and my third year in law school, which is the final year of law school in the United States, I actually had a chance to represent somebody in a jury trial uh, charged with a, a, an assault. Uh, and uh, the jury came back not guilty, and that was it for me. Uh, you know, the, that not guilty verdict sealed my fate. Uh, and uh, it, it uh, got me into being a public defender. I went to the South Bronx, uh, which if you're familiar with New York, uh, is a very, or was at least, a very desolate uh, place back in the uh, 70s. Uh, and uh, and uh, just started representing people who were poor uh, and charged with all kinds of uh, criminal offenses, and uh, it sort of went from there. When you do events like this, obviously there's an element of uh, adrenaline and excitement. Do you get that in the courtroom as well, and do you get it maybe even to a greater extent? You know, um, I think there's always that element of um, tension, uh, I guess excitement is a, is a good word. It's not, it used to be fear. I mean, when I first started, <clears throat> excuse me, it was completely fear. Uh, and I've got a cold, so I apologize. Uh, we but, both do, annoyingly, so bear with <coughs> us. Can you all hear us all right as well? We're loud enough? Good. Awesome. Um, but, uh, you know, as you get, somebody asked, you know, how, how do you deal with all this public speaking? You know, is it something you've learned? Uh, you know, does it get easier as you do it? Uh, the answer is yes, it does. Uh, you get a certain level of confidence in your ability to express yourself. Uh, people seem to understand what you're saying from time to time. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I think uh, over the years, uh, I've, I've developed my ability to communicate. Uh, and uh, that doesn't quite take away the little bit of of performance anxiety that you have. I think, you know, an athlete has it. I'm sure an actor has it. Uh, you want to you go out and have that little bit of, a, of an edge uh, when you go out so that you're not feeling complacent. Uh, and, and that's how I feel, generally speaking. And even tonight, you know, you want to you wanna make a good impression on folks. I think the moment you lose that as well, you've almost lost your love for the craft, whatever that craft might be, right? You need, as you say, that certain nervous energy to remind you that what you're doing is important and you care and you want to deliver. Absolutely. And, and, and you do care. Uh, and that's what makes it happen. Uh, you know, when, when you stop caring uh, and, you, and you don't have that feeling anymore, it's time to, to pack it up. And hopefully tonight we're going to deliver for you lovely people in Bristol. So Michael Peterson, when does he first come on your radar? And what was the main decision if there was one singular kind of motive and you know driving force behind taking on that case well um you know i was living uh in the area right near durham north carolina when this case happened and i had been doing criminal cases for a long time i had uh you know developed a reasonable reputation at that point uh and i read about the case obviously as everybody did uh in in that area it was a very highly publicized case uh, you know, in the United States, and we'll see some of this later on, I think, uh, we have a lot more pretrial publicity about cases. You all don't have that issue. Um, so when Kathleen was found uh, dead, immediately the, the media started cranking up uh, and talking about 
uh, whether it was an accident, whether it was a murder, Michael became a suspect. Uh, and, and frankly, it was the kind of case that would interest me uh, just because it was unusual. Uh, it wasn't clear what had happened. Uh, Michael was an interesting character. Uh, and, uh, and it was the kind of case that you sort of knew uh, would be interesting. Little did we know that, you know, 17 years later, and by the way, we, we figured out backstage that uh, Kathleen Peterson's death occurred uh, 18 years ago tomorrow. Uh, it was on December 9th of 2001. So that's, that's quite a marker for me. Uh, anyway, so I, I heard about it, uh, and then I got a call uh, from Michael's brother, Bill. Uh, he had spoken to a number of lawyers uh, and gotten my name uh, as someone who um, he should talk to. Uh, I, uh, I agreed to go and talk with Michael. I brought my investigator, Ron Jurett, uh, who's in the, uh, in the documentary. Uh, and we went and, uh, and spoke to Michael. Uh, and spent a good amount of time uh, just sort of getting a feel for him, uh, hearing what he had to say about what had happened that night, hearing what he had to say about Kathleen and his relationship with Kathleen. Uh, and, uh, you know, you don't ever take what a client says as the gospel right from the start. You know, you're always going to check. Um, I got along well with Michael. I didn't, I didn't hear anything that made me suspicious of his story, uh, but you're still gonna, gonna go and try to corroborate what he's telling you. And, and we did that. Um, we, uh, you know, for example, he had told me that he had uh, rented a movie uh, from Blockbuster, uh, which used to exist. Uh, some of you will remember that. Now there's only one left in the whole world, right? Exactly. Um, one. Well, and, and they passed on buying Netflix. <laughs> one, of the, one of the great business decisions of all time. Um, anyway, uh, so he told me he had rented this movie, America's Sweethearts, from Blockbuster, and he had the, he had the receipt from Blockbuster, so that was corroboration. Uh, he told me that he had uh, been told uh, a day earlier that one of his books might be optioned for a movie uh, by a Hollywood producer. And we spoke with a friend of his, David Perlmutt, uh, who had gotten that call and called Michael. And David confirmed that, in fact, that had happened. Uh, he told us that he had been drinking wine with Kathleen, watching the movie. Uh, and uh, we talked with uh, not just Todd, but a friend of Todd's, a, a medical doctor, uh, who had stopped at the house with Todd on their way to a party that night around 10 o'clock. And... Uh, uh, the medical doctor confirmed uh, that Michael and Kathleen were simply sitting around drinking wine, watching the movie, and everything was, was quite uh, warm and friendly. Uh, we were told that um, he had, uh, uh, Kathleen had been called by a coworker around midnight that night because she had a, a meeting the next morning or a phone call the next morning. Uh, and Michael had answered the phone. So we spoke with that coworker, who confirmed that when Michael answered the phone around midnight, uh, he was his usual self. There was no tension. Uh, she spoke with uh, Kathleen. That was all normal. Uh, so that was confirmed. Uh, we also spoke with 
all of the couples who socialize with Michael and Kathleen. And, you know, normally in a case like this, when something horrible happens, there's some couple or some person who knows them who says, you know, uh, yeah, they seem to get along, but I got a sense it was there was some tension there, or, you know, I saw them arguing occasionally, or, you know, something like that. We didn't get any of that uh, when we spoke with these people. Every single person we spoke with about their relationship described it as this just magical, wonderful relationship that they all wished they had with their significant other. So, you know, someone asked the question, when did I uh, first decide that Michael was innocent? Uh, and and you, don't, you don't really decide that, I don't think, at any you know, magic moment in time. You, you listen, you, know, you, you hear how the person reacts, you watch the emotion, uh, you confirm and corroborate what they had to say, and then you think about whether the, the prosecution's case really makes sense in light of everything that you found out. Uh, and it just never did to me. So relatively early on, you know, certainly within the first month or month and a half, uh, I was fairly well convinced that Michael was innocent of this. And what was your initial impressions of him as a man? Aside from the case and the nature of the, um, you know, the incident, what was your impression of him as a human being, as a character? You know... Because he um, is a character, right? <laughs> You know, Michael's, Michael can be sort of strange. I, I get that. Um, I liked Michael. Uh, you know, I come from New York. Michael came from Chicago. Uh, we shared a sort of sardonic sense of humor. Uh, uh, he could be sarcastic. He could be a little bit uh, arrogant. Uh, but that didn't really bother me. I was, I was very used to people like that from where I had grown up. Uh, so he and I got along just fine. Uh, but I also recognized that the police in Durham uh, and the prosecutors in Durham were not going to uh, be able to relate to him very well. Uh, and indeed, uh, he had created a, a very negative uh, uh, persona in Durham. He had run for mayor. Uh, he had lost, but in the process of losing, uh, he had uh, misrepresented his war record, uh, which was really unfortunate. Uh, he had written a newspaper column for quite some time, which was really critical of the police and the prosecutors and city government. Uh, and uh, it, it was, you know, I mean, it was a very interesting newspaper column, but if you were in power in Durham, uh, it wasn't something that you were really uh, enjoying reading every day. So, and indeed, I think that sort of plays into, we had a question about, you know, how did this all come about, and why did you agree to do this, and why did Michael agree to do this? A lot of that had to do with his perception that he was not going to be treated fairly by the powers in Durham, North Carolina. How far were you into your meetings with Michael before the offer of the documentary was on the table? And how did the documentary side of it come about? Well, um, uh, it was a we were a couple months into the case. Uh, the, uh, the filmmakers had made another documentary uh, that's uh, called Murder on a Sunday Morning. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, it's really worth seeing. 
Uh, it actually won the Academy Award for Best Documentary uh, back in 99 or 2000. And it's really, really well done. It's about a, a young black American uh, boy who's charged with the murder of a uh, visitor to the United States. Uh, and he's represented by a public defender. Uh, and uh, the public defender gets him acquitted. Uh, and Jean, uh, the, the director, had filmed that. And it, as I said, they got an Academy Award. And John was looking for another case. Uh, and what I'm about to play for you is me cross-examining Sammy uh, about a transcript, from a transcript uh, in a, of a case he testified in, in Wisconsin uh, some years before the Peterson case. So that's what I'm going to play. Now, you were also consulted with a case in Eagle Riverville, Wisconsin. Is that right? Answer, yes, ma'am. Question, that was a case where somebody was found dead with her head in a toilet bowl. Answer, that's what the husband claims, yes, ma'am. Now, in fact, in that case, the woman also had a significant amount of drugs on board, didn't she? Which we believe the husband had administered to her, yes, sir. I'm not asking you what you believed about the husband. I'm asking you whether or not the woman had a significant amount of drugs in her system. Yes, sir. Question, and you went there and you put heads in, put actual heads in toilets, is that right? Answer. As part of my scientific research, I found three volunteers, that word may be used loosely here, for four hours, I put their heads into the actual toilet bowl where the husband claims to have found his wife because science dictates that you compare apples with apples. The women volunteers were the same height, and the same weight as the dead woman. And I wanted to see if it was physically possible for a woman of that height and that weight with that actual toilet to commit suicide by drowning or to drown accidentally. And the science says, no, you can't. Question. And the science was putting the heads in the toilet? Is that right? Answer. No, that was part of it. I asked these women, put your head in the toilet and see if you can drown yourself, and I'll try and fish you out before you succeed. But they never got close. They just simply couldn't do it. The laws of physics didn't allow them to drown themselves. Was that your testimony? Is that what you consider to be even a part of science? That's sort of the height of junk science, toilet science. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, after that particular cross-examination, we also discovered that, that Shabani had misrepresented his qualifications. Uh, he wasn't teaching at Temple University in Philadelphia. In fact, when we went to Temple University, uh, the dean there uh, told us that uh, he had written him numerous times in the past, uh, asking him to stop representing that he taught at Temple University, uh, but he kept doing it. Uh, and so we got the dean to write a letter. We gave it to the judge. Uh, Hudson found that he had committed perjury about his credentials, uh, struck his testimony, and instructed the jury to disregard it. But Sammy then went on uh, and testified in other cases.
uh, because there's no system uh, for disqualifying those people, even when they're found to have committed perjury. And, and indeed, Dwayne Deaver was found later on to have committed perjury. Uh, so junk science is a real problem, uh, and it's something that, uh, that we have to find a way to deal with. There was a moment in that clip where you can see, obviously, the courtroom kind of lets out a nice eruption of laughter. And there's a few moments like that. And there's a question here from Kim Walker, which says, on the series, we see a lot of joking and laughter during discussions between yourself, Michael, and others involved in the case. Is that typical in these cases, uh, particularly ones over such extended periods of time? And does that help with the overall outcome of the case? And indeed, does it help the client and their and your own, I guess, sanity? I don't think it helps with the outcome particularly, but, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of classic gallows humor. Um, you know, when you're, when you're on trial in a case like this, uh, it's like you're in this bubble. Uh, and uh, you're working, you know, literally 18 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, nothing else matters. Uh, you really can't deal with anything else in your life at that point. Uh, and these things come up, uh, and uh, if you let them overwhelm you, uh, you're gonna you're gonna have a hard time uh, keeping the focus. And so I think uh, a lot of times, and and you know, people have said, well, gee, it's weird that Michael and his brother are laughing about stuff. Um, it's just it's it's a release, you know. It's just a release. Uh, I'm guilty of it. Uh, my my investigator was guilty of it, um, and it's just it's how you maintain your sanity in those situations. And we have another question here from, where has it gone? I'm going to keep a track of all of them. Here we go, from Stephen Cotton. Uh, given the somewhat far-reaching nature of Henry Lee's blood spatter explanations, how confident were you putting him on the stand, and do you think his testimony did more harm than good? I've got a clip of Henry, which I want to play. Um, I think Henry was exactly right about his theory. Uh, and I know that uh, the uh, mock jury that we had uh, had a problem with Henry's um, accent. Um, of course, by that point, uh, we were well into our preparation. Uh, we had spent a lot of money on experts. Uh, and we really couldn't sort of uh, change horses at that point. Uh, so we worked with Henry to try to, to simplify his explanations and to, uh, and to help him uh, express them uh, properly. Uh, the clip I'm going to play for you it really has two, two lessons, if you will. Uh, the first lesson is, uh, it was for me, uh, you don't ever send your expert to go see the other side's expert uh, with a book, um, um, because what you'll see is, uh, and I had no idea Henry had done this uh, until it all started coming out in the in the courtroom. Uh, Henry had brought a book with him to see Dwayne Deaver, and you'll see that clip. But the other piece of that clip is that Henry limited his testimony to what the science told him. He didn't try to go overboard. He didn't try to to say uh, something just to help me, uh, he limited his testimony. So let me play that clip and you can see what I'm talking about. 
Now, do you recall having a series of conversations with Agent Deaver after having looked at the model and, and seeing the targets that he created and yes. looking at the test clothes? You I had think to do I talk have some with conversation with him. Uh, do you recall telling him that you had traveled around the United States and that this was some of the best work that you had seen? I tell him something, he did some good work, and the model is beautiful. But the model did not prove anything. Let me show you a copy of your book. You recall giving him a copy of your book, don't you? Yes, I generally give everybody a copy of the book. I want them to learn. Do you recall signing an inscription with a note to Agent Deaver in yeah. this book when you were there? Yes. Yeah. If you would, please read what the note says. I say to Duane Deaver, one of the best, keep up with your good work with warm regard, Henry Lee. You probably found thousands of this, Sam. <laughs> you wouldn't give it to him unless you would felt that way, would you? No, 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 no. I give everybody courtesy. That's Chinese culture. I went to his place. He extended courtesy. Let me see what he has. That's my upbringing. Respect other people. I give him a book. I cannot write, say, you're... Uh, I don't want to say. <laughs> you can't write on the book, say somebody, uh, you're totally wrong or something. <laughs> what, what are you going to write? His conclusion is wrong, but he tried very hard. I cannot say he did not try to do good work. Agent Deaver did a lot of work. So you're, you're agreeing then that he did good work? I did. The, <laughs> what do you want me to say? He did lots of work on the book? <laughs> I cannot say that. Just like I, if I, I give Mr. Rodolf a book, I say, you're one of the best attorney, and, uh, but he's lousy. I, I still give him a book. And, uh... Now, based okay. on all that you saw yes. and all that you did or all that you didn't do, right. is it your testimony before this jury that you can absolutely, conclusively <laughs> exclude that Kathleen Peterson was beaten on her head. I say my conclusion more consistent with an accidental falling. But you can't exclude that she was beaten based nobody on all can, you did. Nobody can exclude everything. But the pattern tells me the indication everything more consistent as an accident. No, and that's that's the proper limit on what somebody like Henry can say. He can say that based on his training and experience and what he saw, that this particular scenario is more consistent than this other. But you can't rule it out uh, because blood spatter and crime scene uh, interpretation generally speaking can't rule things out. You, all you can do is say this seems like it's the better explanation, and that's what he limited himself to. Did that hurt me? I, you know, I guess compared to Dwayne Deaver, who was, you know, absolutely confident that uh, it had to be a beating, uh, Henry is more equivocal, uh, but he's also more honest and more ethical, and so you sort of take you take the good with the bad, I guess. 
Let's go even deeper into the world of philosophy now. Uh, so many questions, so little time as well. But what is your take on this Q question, justice and God subtopic? In a, we said earlier, is Russell Brand in the crowd? This is a very Russell Brand-esque question. In a potentially godless world, David, why is the idea of justice so important? And off the back of that, does the notion of God impact the significance of justice? Um, hmm. Why do we pick that question? Because <laughs> um, it's Russell's. <laughs> you know, I, I was interviewed by Russell Brand, and it was one of the more bizarre interviews I've ever, I've ever done. Um, he's a very smart guy, but he's way out in space. Um, well, since I don't really believe in God, I can't answer the second question. Um, you know, why is justice important? Um, it's important because... Uh, None of us know when we're going to be in a situation where other people are going to judge us for one thing or another. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's uh, if you don't have justice, if justice isn't important, then you simply have anarchy. You know, you simply have uh, the the control of people in power uh, and, and how they decide to treat other people because at that point justice is irrelevant. So, um, you know, I'll talk a little bit later about why I'm doing this and, and what I hope I can uh, leave folks with at the end of, of one of these sessions, but part of it is uh, the importance of the rule of law uh, and uh, the importance of principles of justice, because if we don't have that, then we're into an anarchy. What about this one from Catherine Marsh? She says, which piece of evidence do you think indicates most strongly that Michael is innocent? I, I, don't, think, um, I don't think there's any one piece of evidence that uh, I can point to. You know, for me, it was a, it was a cumulative effect but maybe, uh, and, and we'll talk some about this when we get to the owl theory, um, but, uh, but maybe it was the injuries that, that Kathleen had. Uh, you know, her injuries were not in any way consistent with the theory that the prosecution had uh, and uh, the physical evidence in the case uh, was not consistent with the theory that the prosecution had. You know, you don't, you don't beat somebody to death in a narrow staircase and not have any cast off uh, in that staircase. You don't beat somebody to death with a 36-inch blowpoke in a 42-inch wide staircase and not have marks on the wall from where you're swinging that blowpoke. Uh, you don't beat somebody to death and not have any brain injuries, any fractured skull, any of the injuries that you normally would see if somebody has been beaten to death. So, uh, you know, if, if there was one thing that convinced me at least that the prosecution's theory was completely off base, it was the lack of injuries and the lack of evidence in the stairway that anything had happened in there approximating a beating. A few people have asked this question because of the nature of the way the body was found and 
you know, in a very uncomfortable, awkward position. A few people have said, well, if you'd found your partner like that, would you not try and move them into a more comfortable position and comfort them whilst you waited for the ambulance to come? So I think a lot of people have said, well, that's raised doubts in our minds. And did that not raise any doubts in yours? Well, you know, one of the things you have to recognize is that by the time uh, those videos are being taken, the body's already been moved. Uh, a, when Michael first found Kathleen, the first thing he did was he ran and got some towels and put them underneath her head. So uh, where her head was was where Michael had, uh, had put her head with some towels underneath. But then the EMTs had arrived, uh, and they had worked on her trying to revive her. So, you know, by the time that video uh, is being taken by the police, uh, it's not just where she was. You know, this is not a contemporaneous video uh, taken by a camera up on a wall of how she appeared when Michael found her. It's after a number of minutes or hours even uh, that that police photographer comes in and starts filming. Uh, so the bottom line is you can't, assume anything from the position of the body in that video. Uh, and in fact, Michael did move Kathleen's body and did attempt to, to make her more comfortable when he first found her. Uh, Mike Barnett has asked, when the blowpoke was found, was there any part of you that thought it had been planted by the Peterson family? I worried about that. Um, I mean, this is an interesting uh, part of the, the case that uh, really isn't given much uh, explanation in the documentary, so let me talk a little bit about it. Um, the blowpoke didn't become the alleged murder weapon until about two months before the trial started. In other words, there wasn't any alleged murder weapon until I think the trial started early May of 2003, and sometime in March or April of 2003, Candace Zamperini came to the police, and she basically said, I know what, what he used to, to, kill, to kill Kathleen. Uh, and she said, I had brought them this blowpoke. She brought down her blowpoke from Virginia. And I had given them this thing, and when I, when I showed up the morning after Kathleen's death, it wasn't there. Uh, and that was the first time, and, and now, you know, the case is, uh, at that point, 18 months old, I think. Uh, yeah, something like that. Uh, and that's the first time that there's any talk about a blowpoke being the murder weapon. Uh, we first found out about it, uh, I think it was in April of 2003, when we went to the police station to look at all the physical evidence, and there was this blowpoke there, and that's when we were told that it was missing from Michael's house, and that uh, that was the murder weapon. Um, so, um, you know, we really we really hadn't focused on blowpokes at all uh, until right about the time the trial started, uh, and then uh, Candace uh, testified. Uh, that uh, that blowpoke had always been there, but Michael and everybody in his family said that just wasn't true. They hadn't seen that blowpoke in years. Uh, and indeed, I had Margaret go back through family photos, Christmas photos and Christmas videos, where the family was there in the living room 
looking for what were the fireplace uh, tools that were there. And going back, I don't know, six or seven years at least, uh, that blowpoke hadn't been there. So really our assumption all the way through was that it had been, you know, gotten rid of years before. Uh, and we really didn't spend a lot of time looking for it because no one had seen it for years and years. Um, and then uh, I think it was in uh, August, uh, you know, the trial was well underway, uh, and I got this call saying that Clayton had found the blowpoke in the corner of, a, of an unused garage. Uh, and, yeah, my first thought was, shit. Um, uh, you know, did, did Clayton or one of these kids to help Michael go out and get a blowpoke and stick it down there and then, quote, find it uh, to try to help their dad? I mean, that was my initial thought. And I think you can even see uh, in the documentary that I'm, I'm skeptical when I first hear about all this. Indeed, Michael's sort of skeptical about it. Um, and uh, I was worried about it because uh, the trial had been going pretty well. Uh, and if one of his kids had put that there, uh, that was going to be a real problem for me in the trial. I mean, because I was going to have to disclose that in some way. Uh, and it was gonna it was gonna create real issues. Uh, so that's why when we went downstairs and I saw that it was covered with spider webs and dead bugs, I was sort of relieved uh, because clearly it had been there for you know at least months, if not longer. Um, and so uh, you know we had to we had to establish that, and that's why I got the photographer to come over and take all those pictures. But here's the ethical dilemma I had. Uh, so I had found out about this blowpoke as a result of a, a client communication, an attorney-client uh, communication, which is privileged. So I could not just call up the prosecutor and say, hey, we found this blowpoke. Uh, you know, would you like to test it? Uh, because I had found out about it as a result of a, of a confidential communication. Um, on the other hand, I couldn't just put it back uh, where we had found it, uh, because if it was, in fact, uh, the murder weapon, and who knows at that point, uh, then I'm obstructing justice by sort of hiding the murder weapon. Uh, and so it's a real ethical dilemma for, for a defense lawyer in that situation. Uh, and so what I did was I actually called the judge, uh, who I've known for a long time, and I explained what was going on, and the judge actually came over to the house. It's not in the documentary. Uh, and he sort of supervised what we were doing. Uh, you know, uh, he saw the photographer there taking the photos. Um, he watched Ron Jarrett take the the uh, blowpoke and put it in that tube. Uh, and basically what I said to the judge is, listen, uh, you know, we're going to test this blowpoke. Uh, and if, in fact, it's clean, if it hasn't been used as a murder weapon, then I may or may not use it at trial. I need to sort of think about that. Uh, 
On the other hand, if it comes back and it has Kathleen's blood on it, now I have a real problem because ethically, how do I tell the prosecutor that I've got this murder weapon uh, that I got as a result of a communication from my client without violating attorney-client privilege? Uh, and yet I can't hold it back because that's obstructing justice. So it was a real ethical issue for me. Um, I was worried about it. Uh, we had Tim Palmback come down and test it. Uh, there was no blood on it. There was no DNA on it. There was no hair on it. There was no scalp on it. Uh, it was clean, and, and that's how I was then able to use it uh, to cross-examine Art Holland later on in the case. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The owl. Where do we start? We'll start with the owl. It's definitely an owl. Um, yeah, l- let me talk a little bit about the background on the owl theory. Um, because it was... Uh, it was not something I ever thought about in 2003. Um, uh, the first time I ever heard about the owl theory was two days before my closing argument. Uh, and we had, you know, we had tried this case for five months. Uh, all this evidence had been admitted by both sides. Uh, and the judge had given us a few days off to prepare our closing arguments. Uh, and I got a call from Larry Pollard. And Larry Pollard was a neighbor of the Petersons. He had been friends with Kathleen and Michael. Uh, he was a lawyer, but he wasn't a practicing lawyer. Uh, and he said, I need to come see you. Uh, and so I said, fine. And, and he came to my office. Uh, and he said, uh, I know what happened. Okay. Um, this is interesting. I'm you know, in the middle of this trial. Tell me what happened. And he said, well, we have these owls uh, in our neighborhood, and if you look at the wounds on the back of Kathleen's scalp, I've been looking at those autopsy photos, 
and there's two wounds on the right side of her scalp, on the right side of her head, that look like the talons of these barred owls that live in our neighborhood. Um, and I think that's what happened. I think she went outside after she walked away from the pool. Oh, and we, let, let me address a couple of the other questions. So the pool was not covered. Uh, it was not a cold night. It was in the mid-50s, something like that. The pool had a uh, fountain in the middle of it, uh, which made a lot of noise, and the fountain was on. Um, anyway, uh, Larry said that he thought that when Kathleen had walked away from the pool and gone out into the house, that she had walked out to the front of the house to set out some Christmas decorations. There's these little, uh, little miniature reindeer that they would put out. Uh, and he thought that an owl had swooped down and, and attacked her scalp at that point. And, you know, he wanted me to argue that to the jury. Uh, and I said, well, um, you know, first of all, I've just spent the last five months explaining to the jury that this was all the result of a fall. Uh, and it really wouldn't be a good idea for my credibility uh, to now tell the jury to forget all about that, and it really was an owl. Uh, uh, that wasn't going to work. And I couldn't do that even if I wanted to because there was no evidence in the record that owls even lived in that neighborhood. I mean, it just hadn't ever come up. So you can't argue something that's not in evidence, and I wasn't going to do it anyway. Uh, and so, you know, uh, Larry was not happy with how that conversation ended. Uh, and when Michael was convicted, Larry sort of went on a public campaign about the owl theory. Uh, but he really didn't have a lot of support for it at that point. It was just his theory, and it, and it became a joke. Uh, and, you know, people started talking about, oh, we'll have to set up a lineup of the owls in the neighborhood, you know, to see which one, you know, was the guilty party. Um, and, uh, and I thought it was a joke, sort of. You know, I mean, how does this happen? Um, and I really didn't pay a lot of attention to it. But then in 2011, we got Michael a new trial. Uh, and at that point, uh, we had to go back and look at everything uh, that could be used. Uh, and by that point, Larry had gotten uh, experts to submit affidavits about barred owls and how aggressive they were and how they had attacked human beings in other circumstances. Uh, and, uh, you know, he had, a, he had an expert from the Smithsonian and he had an expert from the Raptor Center out in Montana. Uh, and so he had some, he had some uh, evidence that we needed to take seriously. Uh, and so what I began to do was to, to try to marshal, uh, to try to char characterize the evidence that could support the theory. Um, and surprisingly enough, there was a fair amount of circumstantial evidence that supported Larry's theory. Now, I can't tell you all that uh, this is what happened. Um, but I can tell you that there is circumstantial evidence that at least points in that direction. So what I thought I would do is uh, spend a few minutes going through that circumstantial evidence, and then you can all leave here and, and argue about it among yourselves. First, 
I'm going to stand up. Uh, I'll just turn around here. So barred owls were living in the woods by the Peterson house. There's no dispute about that. That was a fact. Barred owls are aggressive, and they can be dangerous. And you don't have to take my word for it. There's a, a link up there. It's to the uh, National Audubon Society, which is a very well-respected bird society in the United States, and they have a publication, and one of the articles in their publication explained about how barred owls are aggressive and can be dangerous. Barred owls have attacked people. Uh, we didn't know that in 2003, but in the years since, uh, you can find uh, articles about this online. If you Google, you know, owls attacking people, you will come up with a number of articles and even some photos. So I did that um, recently, uh, and that is a story from the Netherlands in 2015. Uh, and uh, it's, it's not a barred owl. They don't have barred owls in the Netherlands. Uh, I'm told it's an eagle owl, uh, and this particular eagle owl was attacking people uh, in a park uh, in a town in the Netherlands, and a bank there had to literally give out umbrellas uh, to protect people from being attacked by this particular owl. Uh, and then there's another story I found, uh, uh, from Scotland, uh, where uh, somebody was attacked again by an eagle owl that knocked him to the ground. And these things are, they're big. Uh, and they're birds of prey. You know, you, you think about owls and you think about Harry Potter and, you know, cute little things. The, these are, you know, they're 25 to 30 pounds and they eat things. You know, they, they attack squirrels and small dogs and little mammals and they and they grab them and fly them up to their nest and kill them and eat them i mean that's what these owls do um and so uh uh there's stories about owls knocking down people and attacking their heads and in this particular case this fellow was bleeding really heavily and uh, thankfully uh somebody found him and got him to a hospital uh, and he was in shock and could have died from this particular attack. He didn't, but it was just fortunate. Um, two of the wounds on Kathleen Peterson's scalp uh, are in the shape of the talons of a barred owl, uh, and, and that's really what got Larry Pollard interested in this. Uh, and uh, I'm going to show you uh, an autopsy photo from... Peterson case. So if you're not, uh, if you're squeamish, don't look because this is an actual autopsy photo. Uh, and this is a photo. Uh, I don't know if you could see it clearly enough, but on the left hand side, you can see a sort of trident shaped wound on the top. And then there's a, uh, a wound in the shape of a talon at the bottom. And next to it, a very similar wound, uh, sort of in the, in the position where an owl's two talons would land uh, if, in fact, an owl had attacked Kathleen Peterson's scalp. And that's, this is the photo that first got Larry Pollard uh, uh, to be talking about the owl theory.
there were tiny wounds on Kathleen's face uh, that, in fact, are consistent with the wounds that had been inflicted by owls attacking other people. We didn't know what these wounds were from back at the, at the time, but since then, and, and those are the wounds, you can, you can sort of see uh, there's a wound on her nose, there's a wound above on her eyelid on her right eye, there's a wound on the eyelid on her left eye, there's a wound above her eye on the left-hand side of her uh, forehead. Uh, and we didn't really know what those wounds were from. Uh, they certainly didn't look like they were from a beating. Uh, but if you then, this fella has wounds, and, and we know that those were inflicted by an owl because uh, he's told us that that's what happened to him. And you can see the wounds on his particular eye and, and up on his forehead. Uh, and we know that that person, oh, I skipped ahead one. We know that that person was attacked by an owl. Uh, and you can see the wounds on that person's face. And if you go back and look at Kathleen's wounds and then you compare them with those wounds, you can see that there's some similarities. It's not that it proves anything but there's some similarities there. And then there are a number of other pieces of circumstantial evidence which I really ignored uh, back at the time, uh, but which when you look at it in hindsight take on some significance. For example, there were drops of blood outside the house on the front walkway leading up to the front door. And there was a smear of blood, like a handprint, on the front door frame, on the outside of the front door. I assumed back in 2003 that those blood drops and that smear were from Michael. That, you know, he had gone over to Kathleen, her hair was covered with blood, he had put towels under her head, uh, he had gone out to look for the EMTs uh, who he had called. And so I assumed that those drops had come from Michael uh, and that the smear was Michael putting his hand up on that door frame. It never occurred to me uh, that perhaps Kathleen had started bleeding outside the house uh, and that those drops of blood were from her and that the bloody smear, uh, the hand smear, was her running into the house. Um, there was a feather, I think it was actually two feathers, uh, found in dried blood uh, in Kathleen's hair. Um, and I assumed uh, that that feather had to have come from a down pillow, because where else would a feather have come from uh, at that point? Uh, never occurred to me that it could have come from a bird outside the house. There was a twig uh, that was found on the stairway right above uh, where Kathleen's body was uh, found. I assumed that that twig had come uh, from the Christmas tree that they had put up that day and that it had been stuck on Kathleen's sweatpants or whatever and had simply come off. Never occurred to me that that twig could have come from a tree outside the house uh, carried over to Kathleen by a bird of some sort. Um, there were numerous strands of Kathleen Peterson's hair uh, that were found in dried blood uh, in her hands. Uh, and the 
unusual thing was that these strands were not cut. They had been pulled out of her head uh, with the root balls attached. In other words, just ripped out of her head. Uh, and we couldn't figure out how and why she would have these hairs with root balls in her hands in blood. Uh, but if you start thinking about owls and what they do, uh, an owl, when it attacks something, its claws, its talons lock. And the reason they lock is because they're going to carry that prey, whatever it is, a, a squirrel, a, you know, a, a raccoon, whatever it is, they're going to carry it up to their nest, uh, which is where they kill it and eat it. And so its talons lock. And so, you know, you start thinking, well, is it possible that that's what happened? And then when Kathleen was trying to get this bird off of her head, uh, that's how that hair got pulled out by the root balls. Uh, and then finally, um, as I said earlier, none of the injuries uh, to Kathleen's head uh, were consistent with a beating. Uh, she had no fractured skull. She had no fractured facial bones, because oftentimes if somebody's being beaten with a blunt object, the person will be aiming for their head, but they'll hit their face, and you'll have broken cheekbones or uh, noses or whatever. If they're trying to defend themselves, you'll have broken arms or fingers or hands. Uh, you had none of that. Uh, there was no brain injuries. Uh, there was no bleeding on the brain, no subdural hematoma, no uh, uh, bruising on the brain, no swelling of the brain. There was none of the injuries that you would expect to see from somebody being beaten on the head with a blunt object of any kind. So what we did is we uh, uh, got a court order uh, that required the medical examiner's office to produce to us every autopsy that had been done in North Carolina for the preceding 10 years that involved a blunt force trauma as the cause of death. Uh, and we went through it. We got 252 autopsies where a blunt force trauma was the cause of death. Uh, uh, and we did a chart with the name of the decedent and then uh, a, uh, <coughs> a little check box for each of the different kinds of injuries there could be, you know, a, a fractured skull, fractured facial bones, fractured arms or hands, uh, subdural hematoma, bruising, swelling, all of those kinds of uh, injuries. And we did a chart, uh, and out of the 252 autopsies that had been done previously, uh, many of them had two, three, or four of those kind of injuries. Some had only one or two, but there was always, always one or more of those kinds of injuries when the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. None of those injuries were present in Kathleen Peterson's case. Uh, so, you know, when you start putting all of that together uh, you, and you start thinking, well, you know, is it plausible? Is it possible? Uh, I can't tell you that that's what happened, but I can tell you that if you start looking at all of those pieces of circumstantial evidence together, uh, it may create a reasonable doubt about an alternative scenario. And that's really what the, uh, the owl theory is all about. It's just about, is that a 
plausible explanation for how the injuries to Kathleen's scalp initially were inflicted, that she then ran inside the house, uh, she collapsed in that staircase, uh, and that thereafter the scenario that we explained in that animation uh, then explains the rest of her injuries. So that's, uh, that's the alternative that exists, and uh, you can accept it or not, uh, but I don't think it's a joke. Um, have you received much hate mail from animal sanctuaries <laughs> giving owls a bad name? I have not received a single letter from an owl lover. Are there any people in this room that support and back the owl theory? Yeah, a couple. Who thinks she fell? Only one. And who thinks Michael did it? You know, the interesting thing is, even people, even people who think Michael did it, and, and I get it, you know, I, he, he can be a little bit odd, and, and uh, you know, there's a lot of blood there, and, and uh, I understand the, the people who, who think he did it, but even the people who think he did it, for the most part, when I get comments, they say, but I think there was a reasonable doubt. Uh, there aren't a lot of people, I don't think, uh, who can watch that staircase uh, uh, and not come away feeling that there was a reasonable doubt in the case. Uh, and, I, you know, we got asked a question, is, is, it, is it a fair representation uh, of the evidence? And obviously, things get omitted. You know, they had 650 hours uh, of video uh, to cut into eight, the first eight episodes. Um, and uh, stuff gets omitted, uh, and some of that uh, evidence would have been favorable to the prosecution. Some of it was favorable to us. I'll give you an example. Um, again, not something that made it into the documentary, but uh, when we went to Germany, we found out that an Army uh, criminal investigation uh, agent had gone to the house because the death of... Elizabeth Ratliff had occurred on an army base. Uh, and that army agent uh, had written a re report, a contemporaneous report. Uh, and we found that agent. His name was Steve Lyons. Uh, and he testified at the trial, uh, and his report was introduced into evidence. And Steve Lyons testified, and his report uh, backed this up, that there was no blood all the way up the stairs. There was no blood on the walls. There was nothing suspicious about the scene in Germany, regardless of what those three women who came in and testified 18 years later uh, said they remembered through their flashbacks. Um, and that just never made it into the documentary. Uh, I would have rather seen it in the documentary, uh, but you know, the filmmaker needed to make some uh, choices. And I think... Overall, uh, you know, when you really think about the evidence that's in the documentary for the prosecution, the death in Germany, you know, those women coming in and testifying about what the scene was like in Germany, uh, the bisexuality evidence, uh, you know, the blood spatter evidence and Dwayne Deaver, that was really the, the thrust of the prosecution's case. Uh, there were other things that they that they tried to establish in terms of motive and and that sort of thing, but none of that really ended up uh, 
working very well for them. Uh, so I think, you know, overall, uh, the documentary, I think, paints a fair picture. It's not perfect, but it paints a fair picture of the evidence on each side of the case. Um, now, we had a question about Sophie, didn't we? Uh, we did. I wanted to ask you this one really quickly first, if that's okay. Has your faith in the American justice system been irreversibly tainted by your experience in this case, given the way that it panned out? If you say there that the evidence against him was so minimal and random. Um, I, I don't know. Um, it certainly was, was uh, shaken at the time of the uh, verdict. Um, you know, I won't say that it was restored by getting him a new trial, um, but uh, it at least told me that if if you um, if you keep at it uh, and uh, you know you you seek justice, that sometimes um, things can get reversed, but. Uh, it really did shake my my faith in in. Uh, I'm not sure it shook my faith my faith in the justice system as much as it shook my faith in myself and my ability to to really understand what was happening in a courtroom, because I was I was absolutely convinced uh, at the end of that trial. Once we found the blowpoke, uh, I could not imagine. Uh, a jury convicting Michael just couldn't imagine it. But let me let me get back to the question about about the uh, the documentary because I think it's an important question. Yeah, from Mike who says this is a bit of juicy gossip for anyone that didn't know this. Um, I've heard Sophie Brunette, the editor um, for the Staircase series, was romantically involved with Michael. Um, is this true? And if so, what impact do you think that it had on the documentary? Uh, the answer is yes, it was true at some point, and it had zero effect. But let me explain why that is. Um, Sophie was stationed in Paris, and her job as an editor, uh, as best I understand it, was that she was doing the first cut on all the video that would go back to France during the pre-trial and trial phases. So, you know, if they had six hours of video from a day of trial, they would send it back to Sophie, and she would edit it down to maybe an hour or two of sort of the key moments in the trial. Uh, so that later on, when the director uh, came back and was going to put it all together, he didn't have to go through six hours each day. He would go through an hour. That's what Sophie did. And... Uh, that all happened uh, prior to the verdict in 2003. And she had no relationship with Michael at all. She was living in Paris. She was married. She had a kid. Uh, there was no relationship. She never met Michael. Um, when the verdict came in, uh, she wrote to Michael uh, because she was upset as a number of us were with the verdict. She had watched it all on video and, and couldn't believe that the jury had convicted him. So she wrote him, uh, and they established a sort of uh, 
pen pal relationship, uh, you know, writing letters back and forth. Um, so they had no relationship at all when Sophie was doing her editing on the first eight episodes. After Michael got uh, a new trial in 2011, uh, Sophie came over to the United States and visited Michael. Uh, and at that point, a romantic relationship developed. Uh, but Sophie had nothing to do with the editing that took place uh, from 2011 on. Uh, so uh, her relationship with Michael had no impact on the film because she had nothing to do with the editing of, of those last five episodes. So yes, uh, she had a relationship. Uh, it didn't affect uh, the last five episodes because she didn't edit those. Uh, she did edit the first eight, uh, but she had no relationship. So it's one of those rumors that is half true, uh, but misleading unless you know the full story. He's a bit of a player as well, isn't he, Michael? <laughs> Seems like he gets around. <laughs> Uh, what about yourself, your personal experience of working on the documentary? Um, obviously, you'll have been you know, in front of the media from the start of your career, probably, and obviously, the longer time goes on, the more adapt you get to being on camera. Uh, what was your experience of being in you know, this feature-length documentary series, and were you completely happy with how you yourself were portrayed, just from a personal point of view? And was there anything that you wish would have maybe been omitted because of embarrassment or... Well, um, if, if I could have eliminated anything, it probably would have been that scene where I'm screaming at the PowerPoint guy. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't, looking at it, I didn't think that was my finest moment. Um, it was, you know, I, 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 I can remember how I felt. Um, uh, and there was a lot of tension uh, that night. Uh, but it, it wasn't it wasn't uh, it wasn't my proudest moment. No, you know I think um, and, and you know I look back on it now, and it's it just makes it all more honest. You know, I mean, uh, what's and all, yeah, it's all yeah. In there. Well, you know, it 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 is what it is, and um, you know what you see in the documentary is all real time. Uh, you know, and, and I don't mean to be critical of, of another documentary, but I watch Making a Murderer 2, uh, and some of those meetings just seem a little contrived to me. Uh, I don't know how the rest of you felt about it, but some of the meetings just, they seem like they're for the camera as opposed to, you know, sort of... Uh, what's really going on on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, with the staircase, there was absolutely nothing contrived about any of that. Uh, there was never a time when the filmmakers said, hey, can you have a meeting about this so that the, you know, so that the audience can understand A, B, or C? None of that ever happened. You know, we would decide that we were going to have a good facts, bad facts session, uh, and we had promised the filmmakers that if something significant was going to take place, we'd let them know, and they would make a decision about whether they want to film it or not. And then they just filmed it. You know, I mean, there weren't any, you know, can you do that again? Can you do another take? 
you know, can you pretend this? It was all real time as it was happening, which I think is, is part of what makes it so um, interesting uh, for people who have not really been in the system, uh, you know, so that you can actually get a sense of what a criminal defense lawyer does uh, in preparing a case, because what you see is what we do. Uh, there's nothing, nothing made up about that. And, you know, it's probably, uh, you know, more, um, more intense, more, uh, uh, more structured because of how serious the case was and, uh, and, and the fact that, that we had a lot of resources. Uh, but there's nothing made up about that at all. Uh, so, you know, uh, I, I'm glad that, that that scene of me losing it is in there because you know that uh, they, didn't, they didn't try to make me look good. Uh, it just is what it is. As we approach the home straight, um, I hope you've all had a good time tonight, Bristol. I hope you've enjoyed the questions and the topics we've explored. Um, how's the documentary changed your life? Because we were talking earlier on, when it first came out, the initial series in 2004, um, it didn't have anything like the impact that it's had worldwide since going on Netflix, which is obviously such a huge platform. Um, and you've obviously been living with this case for almost 17, 18 years to the day. But since going on Netflix, since you know it's become a household name, this show, how's your life changed? Well, I spent the last two weeks in the rain in the UK. <laughs> So for the better, <laughs> <laughs> and I've got a bad cold as a result. Um, you know what the documentary has has really done. Uh, it hasn't really changed my life in terms of day to day living, other than when I'm traveling here. Uh, you know, I don't have more cases coming in, or uh, you know. It, my, my daughter, I have an eight-year-old daughter who's very angry that I'm not home right now. Uh, so that, that's a problem. Um, but um, I think what it's really done is give me a platform uh, to talk about the issues that I've really cared about for a long, long time. Uh, it's allowed people to see what criminal defense lawyers actually do. Uh, and uh, you know, to get a better sense uh, that we're not these sort of sleazy characters who uh, are just uh, you know trying to twist uh, uh, reality to get people off, that we actually do care about the truth and about trying to to uh, uh, represent people uh, in ways that are ethical, uh, and. Um, it's given me a chance to talk about what I think are uh, really the, the fundamental things that criminal defense lawyers do. Uh, and, and if I have to uh, sort of boil it all down, I think criminal defense lawyers um, protect the rule of law uh, because we're trying to make sure that the rules that are there are in fact followed for everybody. Uh, and I think that what we do is resist the abuse of power by people who are in positions of authority. Uh, you know, when, when police officers take a Brendan Dassey uh, and put him in a room and uh, coerce 
a, a statement out of him, that's an abuse of power. Uh, when Dwayne Deaver gets up and uh, lies about evidence, that's an abuse of power. Uh, and, and that's really what we as criminal defense lawyers fight against is those instances where there's an abuse of power by people who are in authority. And, uh, you know, when I started uh, going around talking about all this, I, I really sort of focused on the criminal justice system and, and how important those two things were to the criminal justice system. But the truth is that these days, the rule of law is under attack in many, many places, not just in the criminal justice system. Um, you know, there's abuse of power in places like Hungary, in Poland, in Brazil, and the United States. Uh, and the rule of law is under attack in all of those places. Uh, and um, uh, it's a scary time. Uh, it really is. Uh, and, you know, in thinking about what's going on and what I have done my whole life, uh, and where I want to, the message I want to leave you all with is I'm reminded of, of the words of uh, a Protestant minister uh, who was found in a German prisoner camp uh, after World War II. Uh, and uh, when the camp was liberated, uh, he was asked, you know, why, why are you here? You know, you're a Protestant minister. How did you end up in this camp? Uh, and, and this minister, whose name is Martin Niemöller, uh, is quoted as saying that um, first they came for the gypsies. And I wasn't a gypsy, so I didn't speak up. And then they came for the Catholics. And I wasn't a Catholic, and I didn't speak up. And they came for the Jews, and I wasn't a Jew so I didn't speak up. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I wasn't a trade unionist, so I didn't speak up. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak up. And I think, you know, we are in a time when we all need to speak up, when we all need to protect the rule of law, when we all need to protect the norms that have governed our democracies for a long time, and when we have to speak up if we see abuses of power. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately I hope that by coming around and talking about this stuff that uh, you all will, will sort of carry that message out of this room and back to your neighborhoods and back to your friends and families and coworkers because it's a scary time, uh, and we all need to speak up uh, uh, when, uh, when we see this stuff happening. So, thank you. Thanks. I'm sure uh, we could all get behind those words. Final question of the night, David. I'm sure everybody would like to know, um, how is Michael now? How's he doing? Are you still in touch? And uh, Michael is living in an apartment in Durham. It has no stairway. Um, it's a ground floor apartment. Uh, he uh, 
he's doing uh, the things that we all do every day. He goes to the gym, he goes to the supermarket, he visits his grandchildren, uh, and he's doing all right. Thanks very a much. A happy ending. Chris. David Rudolph, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your time. I hope you've had a good night. We're going to go and pack down and chill out for a couple of minutes. But David said, if you want to get a photo with him, he'll come out in a few minutes and say hello to you. And thanks for coming out and uh, have a snap. Thanks again. Cheers, Bristol. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.